Verse 12. Moving on in Joseph's story. We've just now covered pretty much you know, where we were on Sunday. Glad we're moving along. Moving at a quick clip here. Verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Now you remember Shechem. Shechem is the place of Dinah's rape. Jacob's daughter Dinah. And Simeon and Levi mass murdered the town. And the rest of the sons pillaged and looted there in Shechem. And it's strange to me. This is not long afterwards. Probably two years after that happened. That now the brothers are taking the sheep back to Shechem. Back to that very area. I wonder why they're headed back there. Verse 13. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. I will go. Israel the father says, Son, your brothers are in a place they shouldn't be. I've heard your brothers are in Shechem. They don't need to be in Shechem. God got us out of Shechem. We had to move out of there. That was not a good place for the family. And your brothers are back there again. You may say, well, didn't they mass murder and they slaughter everybody in the town? Yeah, in the town. But the surrounding region probably by now has flowed back into the town. People are still there. Canaanites, pagans are still in the area. And that's right where Jacob's sons head back to a pagan stronghold. And Joseph says, or Jacob says to Joseph, I need my sons out of there. The father does care for his sons, all of them. Will you go get them? And Jacob says, or Joseph says, yes, I will. Does this idea of a father sending his son to save a lost people sound familiar to you? It's interesting to me. It's a preview, a wonderful preview of the father and the son. The people are in Shechem. My children are in the world of sin, in the place of paganism. Jesus, will you go and get them for me? Interesting parable in Matthew 21, verse 33. Jesus said there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on his journey. Now when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one. And then they killed another and they stoned a third. And again, sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They'll respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is an heir. This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And let's seize his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Number five in your list, Joseph is sent to get his brothers out of Shechem. And Jesus tells this parable that is a picture of his own life. The father sending the son and the son being killed. Who the father sent to save the people. And the same thing happens in Joseph's life. Several thousand years prior. Same thing happens to Joseph. Verse 14. He said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers. And the welfare of the flock. And bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Again, every phrase here touches the life of Jesus. Does anybody remember what Hebron means? Remember what Hebron means? You'd have to go back to your old notes. I happen to have it right here in mind. <laughs> Hebron means fellowship. It is the place of fellowship. Hebron, fellowship. And what happens here, number six on your list, Joseph is sent out of fellowship with his father and into Shechem. 
In the same way that Jesus left the fellowship that he had with the Father to come to earth and to die in our place. As a matter of fact, and you may have heard this before, when Jesus was on the cross, there was a moment where the first time in all eternity, past and future, Jesus was completely broken from fellowship with the Father. Talk about traumatic. If you look at the life of Jesus, all his life he's constantly off praying, spending evenings, nights, Weakens in prayer to the Father. Why? Because Jesus craved his fellowship with the Lord. And being on the earth as it was, already there was a distance that was unique in the whole entire eternity of Jesus and his Father. Because in all eternity before Jesus came, they were one constantly, 100%, 100% fellowship, Father and Son. But when God donned the earth suit, when Jesus came in the flesh, suddenly now there was a distance. But he still sought fellowship with the Father constantly until he was on the cross. And cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, in Mark 15.34. Which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus left Hebron completely. He was out of heaven 100%. He left fellowship with the Father but Jesus did it so that we could have fellowship with the Father. So Joseph left Hebron, left fellowship, to go get his brothers. Genesis 37, verse 15. A man found him, found Joseph, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, what are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are uh, pasturing the flock. And then the man said, they've moved from here, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. You know what Dothan means? This is interesting to me. There are two possible meanings for Dothan. It's an ancient phrase, but there seem to be two meanings. One is double cistern. Double cistern. A place of two wells or, or two pits. Now we can assume that one of these two wells was dried up. For in a few minutes here as we read, Joseph gets tossed into one. A dried up pit. A well without water. But think about this. The brothers are far away from home, possibly looking for fresh water to water their flocks. And in the meantime, they're getting farther and farther and farther out of fellowship, farther away from their father. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God says, My people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Number two, to hew for themselves cisterns broken cisterns that can hold no water. What does this mean? It means, folks, that when we go looking for refreshment away from the Father, we commit two evils. We forsake the one who can water our thirst, and we attempt to dig new wells that can't hold water. The things that we go after in our lives cannot hold water like the Father's wells. Which brings us to the second possible meaning for Dothan. Dothan also may mean double sickness. Double sickness. As we talked about last week, extensively the flesh gives birth to flesh. And carnality craves more carnality. And we know the brothers already hate Joseph. But now hatred becomes active hostility. Anger gives birth to action, which is why Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. You have anger issues? <laughs> Deal with them now. Don't let the sun go down on them because anger can birth a worse action. Anger is not sin. Hatred is. 
Deal with it now or you may end up with a double sickness. Verse 18. Let's read on. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Joseph, or Reuben heard this and he rescued him out of their hands and said, Let's not take his life. Reuben further said, Shed no blood. Um, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. And Reuben said this, that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to the Father. Reuben. Reuben in this story is a lot like a character in Jesus' story. A man by the name of Pontius Pilate. If you look at what Reuben does and compare it to what Pilate does. Reuben says, I'll satisfy my brother's anger. I'll feed their hatred by telling them, go ahead and, and, and rip off his cloak and, and toss him into this pit. You can do that. And by doing this, I'll appease their hatred, their jealousy. And then I'll rescue him. John 19, verse 1. Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. Well, then Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. And Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. What's Pilate doing here? You, most of you saw the passion. You know this moment. When Pilate comes out and he has Jesus brutally, horribly flogged. But he does it to try to get Jesus off. He figures in his Roman thinking mind, man, if I make a bloody pope of him and then bring him out in front of the people, he'll look so pathetic, so awful, so terrible, that when the people look on him, they'll have pity on him. Any normal human being would. And then they'll let him go. And I don't have to have this innocent man's blood on my hands. Just like Reuben. I don't want Joseph's blood on my hands. So let's feed the anger just a little bit. Let's get, give the hatred just a little morsel here. Not enough to kill Joseph, but just enough to kind of, you know, appease them. There's a problem with that kind of thinking. Oh, and that's a problem too. <laughs> the problem, folks, is that when you feed evil, it only makes evil more voracious. When you feed hatred, it only makes hatred want more. Jesus came out in front of the people. And the people got hungry. Crucify him. Crucify him. Look, he's a bloody pulp. He's bleeding all over the place. Let's put him on a cross now. Evil exploded in that moment. Reuben's brothers said, yeah, let's throw him in the pit. Like Reuben said. His coat was stripped from him. By the way, that's number seven. Joseph's coat was stripped from him. And number eight, Joseph was thrown into a pit. Look at verse 23. It came about when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and they threw him into the pit. And now the pit was empty without any water in it. In the same way that Jesus' clothes were stripped off and lots were cast for them, and in the same way Jesus went down into a pit. Well, when did Jesus go in the pit? 1 Peter 3.18, Jesus also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. 
in the pit. Joseph was thrown into a pit. Jesus died and went into the pit. Ephesians 4.9 tells us, Paul says, Now this expression, he ascended, quote unquote, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And listen to this, Zechariah 9.11 says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Joseph was tossed into the waterless pit. Jesus went into the waterless pit, that place called hell, Hades, Sheol. And he went in there, and we were talking about this on the way here. Hayden was asking, what about what happens when people die? Before Jesus was crucified on the cross, there was only one opportunity, one choice, one place. Sheol. Sheol in the Hebrew. Hades in the Greek. And what we understand about Hades from a parable of Jesus and Sheol from the Jews was that it was a holding place. A hopeless holding place where you went when you died because there was nowhere else that you could go. A holding place. If you were approved of God, if you had died having faith in God, then you went to a paradise side of it. If you died hating God or rebelling against God, you went to the torment side of it. But Paul reveals to us that when Jesus died, in those three days, that many assume he was just asleep in the grave, he was very busy. He was in the pit. He went to the pit. He preached to the spirits who were disobedient. This is heavy theology. I'm not going to get into it tonight. It was already a late hour. But the other thing he did, Paul says, is he went down there and he led out, Ephesians chapter 4, captivity captive. He got those people who were captive in the pit in Hades at that time who could not possibly be in fellowship with the Father until their sins were paid for. But Jesus paid for their sins on the cross. And in that small period of time, went directly, Jesus went directly from the cross to the pit to pull the people out and take them to be with the Father in heaven in fellowship. Now, Hayden, when a person dies, if they die in Jesus, straight to Father. They go straight to be with Him. If they die outside of Jesus, they still go to Hades to await judgment. Joseph was thrown into the pit. Jesus went down to the pit. Verse 25. We are going to finish. Hang with me here. I know this is a lot. And then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of the Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and interesting myrrh. <laughs> oh, what's interesting about myrrh? Well, Jesus, myrrh is a burial spice. Myrrh was given to the baby Jesus as one of three gifts. Myrrh also was what Mary went to embalm him with on the morning she found that he didn't need embalming at all. On their way to bring them down to Egypt. Here come these Ishmaelites. Verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, Hey, wait a minute. What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? We don't make anything on that. I mean, he's out of the way, but it doesn't benefit us. He's not being nice. He's being capitalistic. What profit is it, is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Number nine in your list, Joseph was handed over to Gentiles for the dirty work. Let's not have Joseph's blood on our hands. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. 
the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. Let, let's get rid of them that way. Folks, the Ishmaelites, offspring of Abraham's fleshly plan, as opposed to the offspring of God's miraculous hand, the people of Isaac and Israel. Let's hand them over to the Gentiles. Jesus was handed over to the Gentiles in the same way. And what did the chief priests and scribes in the temple guard do? Think about this. So interesting. They didn't want to kill Jesus. They wanted him dead, but they didn't want to be the ones to do it. John chapter 18, verse 31. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Pilate said to them, You judge him. They're coming in saying, He's violated our highest law. He's making himself God. We want him dead. And Pilate says, Hey, judge him yourselves. The Jews said, Well, well we can't. And you took that right away from us. Way back in around A.D. 12 or so, you took that right away. You, you said that we can't anymore kill people. We don't have the right of capital punishment. The funny thing is that they had no problem getting ready to stone a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. They were going to kill her. They had no problem trying to push Jesus over a cliff in Luke chapter 4. They were going to kill him then. But in this moment, they could have killed Jesus with their own hands. But they took him to Pilate. Why? This is great. It's not because they were wimps. It's because they were fulfilling prophecy. And they didn't have a clue. They didn't even know. Their own scriptures, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and Jesus' own words stated that the Son of Man would be lifted up. That His hands would be pierced. That He would have stripes on His back for our transgressions. Psalm 22 is so vivid in its description of the crucifixion, it's like it's written as a first-hand account, even though it was written far earlier. Jesus said his own death would be by crucifixion. Well, Joseph was handed over to the Gentiles for the dirty work in the same way Jesus was. Verse 28. Then some Midianite traders passed by and they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Number 10. Number, oh wait, before we get to number 10, let me tell you this. Don't be confused when you see Ishmaelites and then suddenly Midianites and then back to Ishmaelites. This is actually on a list of things that contradict themselves in the Bible. Biblical contradictions to prove that the Bible is not a book that holds water. These things, when people write them, all they're doing is writing their own foolishness on the page. Because God's word stands. So what about this? In one place it says they were Ishmaelites, and in another place it says Midianite, and then suddenly Ishmaelites again, and later on you'll see the Midianites sold him into Egypt. So which was it? Ishmaelites or Midianites? Can't you make up your mind? Clearly there's a problem, a contradiction. Not at all. This traveling caravan had both Ishmaelites and Midianites. Now, why would they be traveling together? Ishmael and Midian were both sons of Abraham. Ishmael was the son of Abraham by Hagar. Midian was the son of Abraham by Keturah. And it was not unusual for bands of brothers, cousins, to travel together, especially through dangerous places, as they were doing. The Midianites and the Ishmaelites together. And what this so-called contradiction really does is reveal the meticulous accuracy of Scripture. The writer could have just said Ishmaelites and let it be that. But there were Midianites there too. So he mentions them both because they were both there. That's not a contradiction. It's just truth. 
Well, number 10 on your list. Interesting that Joseph was sold for 20 shekels of silver. You may recall Jesus was also sold out by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. And you may say, well, there's where it breaks down right there. Rick, Joseph was sold for 20 and Jesus for 30. Why is there a difference? Why isn't it the same? Okay, listen, because this is very heavy. Because Joseph isn't Jesus. He's not the same guy. Don't forget that. We're looking at a picture, a type, and not the real thing. Not a mirror image, but a picture, an indication. One that is like Jesus in many ways. And Joseph, like Jesus, was sold out for some pieces of silver. Verse 29. Now Reuben returned to the pit. And behold, Joseph was not in the pit. I like that. Because Jesus wasn't in the pit either when they returned to it. Joseph was not in the pit. And so he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers. And he said, the boy's not there. As for me, where am I to go? And again, Reuben is Pontius Pilate through and through. Pilate sealed the tomb and put a guard there to protect it against the body being stolen. But who gave him this advice? The Jewish leaders. The very ones who wanted Jesus dead, now Pilate is going to for advice. This is interesting. Matthew 27:62 says, On the next day, the day after crucifixion, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. What were they doing? Having coffee? Hanging out? Hey, buddy! Good job. Way to kill Jesus. But they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I'm going to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal away his body and say to the people, He's risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, Okay, yeah, good. You have a guard. Go. Make it as secure as you know how. And away they went and made the grave secure Not very secure, obviously. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now listen, in the same way, Reuben listens to the counsel of the very ones he was trying to protect Joseph against. They say, brother, look, what am I to do? And and they say, well, let's let's devise a plan here. Let's work this out. we got an answer for you. You don't have to be in trouble here either, Reuben. Interesting thing about Pontius Pilate. uh, History tells us some things about him. It says, number one, the the Coptic church in Egypt actually believed that Pontius Pilate ultimately became a Christian. Other traditions say that was very unlikely, actually, that Pilate went crazy and committed suicide. And it may even have been tied to the guilt over having crucified Jesus. One thing that is pretty strong in history, it's believed that Pilate's wife did become a Christian. That she did over time become a follower of Jesus. Well, verse 31 says they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. They knew it was. And then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Now, he didn't notice that the coat wasn't torn up. It was just bloody. But still, he he took it. He bought the lie, the deceit. The boys lied. Deceived their father. Listen to this. Jacob is deceived here in the same way he deceived his dad. 
What goes around comes around. And what comes around goes around. Jacob and his mother Rebekah took a goat and they slaughtered it. And they skinned it and they put the skin on Joseph, on Jacob's arms so that Jacob could go in and deceive his father with the skin of the goat and with a meal, a savory meal cooked up for his father to eat. Thinking it was Esau, Jacob deceived his dad with the blood of a goat. And now Jacob's sons do the same thing to him. This is hard teaching, but i got to say this. And I have been uncomfortable about it all week. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Yeah, Rick, we, we read that verse last week. We talked about it. Listen to what J. Vernon McGee has to say about it. He says, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Not something else. Not something similar. But the same thing. In our lives, folks, the things that we sow, we reap. And so I stop and think about my life and the decisions I've made and the deceit maybe that I did to my parents. And I look at my kids and think, am I going to reap the same? Do not be surprised when sins we've committed in our past are revisited on us, even by others who... who there is a spiritual law out there that is more solid than the physical laws and that is that sin begats sin. That what you reap, what you sow, you will reap. It will come back up. Oh, you can be forgiven. You will be forgiven and God's grace is huge and wonderful and merciful and washes over you so that you don't have to walk with the guilt of the sin of the past. However, the sin of the past may come back to bite you. Anyway, as it did for Jacob. Number 10 on your list. Joseph was thought to be devoured by a wild beast. Well, how's that like Jesus? Well, Jesus was devoured by an evil beast called sin. Completely devoured. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, I want you to hear this. We're down at the very end. But this is more important than anything we've talked about tonight. So if you're a little dozy, snap in, focus, listen. Then I understand. I don't ever get dozy, but I'm up, up here, you know, talking. A little easier not to get. If I fell asleep, we'd have a real problem. Verse 35. Verse 34, actually. Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Verse 35. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. The sons who had deceived him now are starting to feel bad about it. And they're looking at dad, and he's not getting better, and this is not going away. And man, we did something bad here. Let's comfort our father, but look at Jacob. He refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. This is important. It's the first mention of the word Sheol in the Bible. The first time you see it. We've talked about the fact that first mentions in the Bible often have something special to teach us, and this is no exception. In this very verse, Israel believes his son is in Sheol. Number 11 on your list, Joseph is supposed to be dead in Sheol. That's where Joseph's supposed to be. 
Number two was he was thought to be devoured by a wild beast and now he's supposed to be dead in Sheol. Again, Sheol for the Hebrew people was a hopeless place. A place where the dead went to wait. But at this point in history, an Israelite would have to ask, what are the dead waiting for? Abraham is in that tomb in that grave of Machpelah. What's he waiting for? He's in Sheol. What's he doing there? He's just floating around waiting. There's no hope. What's going to happen to the dead? What are they waiting for? I already kind of blew my cover on this one. What they're waiting for was another son who actually would go down to Sheol to pull them out. And Psalm 16.10 tells us, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. David, man, the insight is stunning here. David, before Jesus ever came on the scene, long before, David says, you're not going to leave me in Sheol. I know that's where I'm going when I die. I know I'm going to go to wait, but I am waiting for your Holy One who will not see decay. I'm going to see decay. My body's going to rot in the grave, and my spirit is going to be waiting in Sheol, but man, your Holy One, he's not even going to be in the grave long enough. Three days, and boom, he'll be out. And during those three days, again, what did Jesus do? He pulled those out of Sheol who had been waiting all that time. That's hope. And just like Joseph, who was supposed to be dead, but was alive, so too Jesus was supposed to be dead. But he is alive. Hebrews 12.2 tells us Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Last verse, 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Now this is an important bridge verse because it shows us that point in time when Israel took its first step into Egypt. People wonder, how did Israel get into Egypt in the first place? The story of Joseph gets them there. But this is fascinating to me. Let me tell you this twelfth and final comparison between Joseph and Jesus, and it has to do with Egypt. Number twelve, Joseph was betrayed by his own to save his own. He was betrayed by his own to save his own. Jesus was betrayed by his own to save his own. What his brothers, Joseph's brothers, intended as harm ended up being their very salvation. They wanted Joseph dead. But by sticking him in the pit, then pulling him out, selling him to slavery, what they actually did, inadvertently, not knowing it, was they set up a way for them to be saved. From what, Rick? From the coming famine that they had no idea was coming. For 20 years later... Joseph, set up now as second in command over all of Egypt, is in a position to save his family who come out of Canaan and into Egypt to be saved. There's no food. Starvation is spreading across the land. And they go to Egypt to see if maybe they can get some food. And their own brother, the one they sold into slavery, is there. And they are cared for and they are protected. But something else happens here. That is just like the story of Jesus. This is just awesome. God pulled the people of Israel out of Canaan and put them into Egypt using Joseph as that vehicle. Using the pain and tragedy and difficulty of Joseph's life as that vehicle 
to save them not just from famine but to save their very lives God ordained that they should be in Egypt for 400 years well, what do you mean by that? they were slaves in Egypt but they also were a people into themselves or unto themselves they lived in the land of Goshen they were set apart they were set apart from the Egyptians and they were certainly set apart from the paganism that was in Canaan now from a Jewish perspective they think we were enslaved for 400 years but from a God perspective he says yeah but you were protected for 400 years I took you out of that land that was so sick with paganism that had you stayed there you would have died there I pulled you out to save you I brought you to Egypt yes a tough place in the world to save you and when the time was ripe I will bring you back out of Egypt into Canaan's land where you by then will be truly a people and Joseph said in Genesis 45 verse 5 God sent me before you to preserve life and again God sent Jesus before us to preserve our lives why do I have to live in Egypt why do I have to be in the world at all why this place why now because God is setting you apart he wants to protect you to preserve you and to prepare you for the coming glory of heaven and he does it by sending Jesus ahead of you now this is the one thing most important I want you to hear and understand we saw we saw 12 things and there are many more in the life of Joseph that compare incredibly to Jesus but the reason that we did this tonight and took this approach is I want you to understand something, something as students of the Bible and it's a word and we've done this tonight for one reason and the word is hermeneutics hermeneutics Merriam-Webster defines hermeneutics as the methodolo methodological principles a person uses in interpreting or understanding the Bible what does that mean? it means when you come to read the Bible it's what you bring to the Bible to help you understand what the Bible says. you're here hermeneutic and the reason why there are all kinds of different interpretations of the Bible is people have a different hermeneutic one person's hermeneutic is that the Bible is metaphors and allegories so when that person reads the Bible and sees a page of the scripture they just go oh that's interesting that's nice well I can apply that that has nothing to do with me this is good that's not it's just allegory it's just metaphor and it's not literal that's a hermeneutic you know my hermeneutic if you've been here more than once is that the Bible is literal this is God's word word for word page for page it is a literal letter from God your hermeneutic but I want you to understand something the key to hermeneutics is hermeneutics <laughs> the key to hermeneutics is hermeneutics if you want the best hermeneutic the best way to approach scripture to understand scripture to interpret it to, to get it to understand it it's looking for Jesus in all the scriptures God wrote this book so that we could see Jesus he gave us the Bible to bring us to Jesus it is all about Jesus Revelation 19.10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy he's what it's all about and so again whether you're reading in the book of Leviticus or the book of Jude or Matthew or Exodus if you're reading one of the prophets look for Jesus 
Because the point of Bible study, the point of the scripture, is to bring us to the one who saves.